Few entertainers have experienced success in so many ways as Tony Orlando. Top-selling recording artist, songwriter, concert headliner, TV star, actor, Broadway performer, and author. Tony's a Grammy nominee, has sold millions of records, including five number one hits. He has two platinum albums, three gold, and 15 top 40 hits. His TV show, Tony Orlando and Dawn, ran for four seasons and catapulted the trio from popular recording artists into major stars. And Tony's been on stage entertaining millions ever since. His final tour promises to be an unforgettable experience as he brings his warmth, humor, and infectious smile to the stage for the last time in Chicago. He's performing at the Desplaines Theater tomorrow night and at the Arcata Theater in St. Charles at 3 p.m. on Sunday. And music icon Tony Orlando joins me tonight. Tony, thank you for spending some time with us. What a what a wonderful uh, God! Thank you for all that. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, it. you've had such an amazing career for, for like sixty years. I mean, it's been quite a ride for you. So after sixty-four years, um, I thought, what a ride! What an yeah. incredible yeah. journey this has been. And and here's the, here's the thing, I. It's been such a part, big part of my life. I mean, I started when I was 16 that I didn't realize the impact it would have on me when I said, I won't be performing in a live show anymore. Yes. And it wasn't about money or about gigs or about what I, it was about the people. And I looked out at the audience last night, the Falls Casino up there in Niagara Falls. And I, and when I said I was, I said, uh, you know, this would be my last time here. I love that theater so much. And the people stood up and there was a, from the, from the point of my point of view on the stage, I truly felt a love connection with them. And, yeah. and it was, it was such a wonderful feeling, but at the same time, I got to be honest, it kind of it made me tear up a I little think bit. So yeah, because this is all I've ever known. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, even if you you know you go back, Tony, and and I think about this, that there's things people say to you in life that stick with you and kind of sets the tone for what you've been doing for the last you know over sixty years. Your grandfather said something to you when you were really young, and that would kind of guide your life forever. He did. I, I mean, that's uh, it's amazing that you do such. No wonder why you're a great broadcaster because that's really doing your homework. Oh, and uh, yeah, you're right. My grandfather was the first. He was played first trumpet in the Desi Arnaz Orchestra. Yeah, amazing. He opened the he opened the Coconut Grove in New York. He was the head of local eight hundred two for Latin musicians. He invented a mouthpiece on trumpets that is still valid to this day. It's called the Stanley Mouthpiece, which is a double-cupped mouthpiece. He was a teacher of English in Puerto Rico. He was a he was the most eclectic human being ever. And as he was walking out of, out of the apartment, and I was living with my grandmother, my grandfather, and my mom at the same time after my mother's divorce, and I couldn't have been any older than, oh, my goodness, I'm thinking maybe maybe five or six or seven years mm. old. And I remember him stopping at the door as he left, and he turned with a sense of seriousness that I can recall to this day. And he looked at me and said, I want you to remember this. I, don't, I want you to go through this world and not think ordinary. Try to make yourself stand out. 
make something of yourself and make make your name something special for people, but always do it with the idea that you're giving to them and you're not taking from them. And I never forgot it. And when wow. he left, I can, I can actually recall sitting on that, you know, you know those Castro couches that you used to open up and make yeah. a bed out of? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was, that's what I was sitting on in the living room wow. as he was going to work. And I thought, I took that with me every single day. Every day, I would say, oh, Papito, that's what his name was, Papito, me little pop in Spanish. I go, Papito, I'm trying my best. And mm. right from day one, he was the piston and the the engine uh, and the ignition, really, to my career. Wow. That's amazing. And it's amazing that you remembered that that young. And it, and it really, and I know it really has guided you. And he certainly was someone that inspired you. And I also know there's some other musical and entertainment icons that kind of, you know, you wanted to emulate, uh, you know, throughout your entire career. Sam Cooke, Bobby Darren, even Jackie Gleason, like just as general entertainers on television. I mean, you you had some pretty cool people. You know what's crazy about it? Yeah. You know what's nuts about it is that Bobby Darren, who was one of my idols, right, performing idols, Mm -hmm. basically was my first manager with Don Kirshner. And I was 15 years old. I know that's crazy. That's crazy. How did it Don find crazy, you? Right? Like, how did, how did Don find you? Like, how did he find you to to start writing music? You know, and, it's weird yeah. because yeah. I used to take my guitar <laughs> to the Brill Building in New York, oh, the yeah. famous Brill Building, and I would go up to the top floor and w- w- look at any office that said record company, and I would knock on the door and, and ask for an audition. Wow! And finally. You know, I, I, I exhausted every floor. No one wanted to sign me. <laughs> and then I went to the building across the street, which is never marked as the famous one, but it is a famous one, 1650 Broadway. And on that sixth floor was Don Kirshner's office, but it said Alden Music. It, doesn't, it didn't say record company, so I didn't want to go in. And as I was leaving, go to knock on the door, the secretary that works there said, go ahead in. There's a lot of performers in there. Go ahead. And I walked in, and Mr. Kirshner already had Bobby Darren in that office. I didn't know it. Charlie Francis wow. in that office. I didn't know it. Two young writers by the name of Tom and Jerry mm. who were not very successful until they changed the name to Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. That, that, yeah, then the Carol King was in that office. Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, all four of them Hall of Famers, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, and of course Academy Award recipients, and I didn't know. So I walked in there audition for him, and he says to me, I'm going to make you the next Richie Valens. Wow. And I got up, and I walked out of there going, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and I walked out of there, and for three months, he kept calling my mom, saying, would you please tell your son that I want to make him a star. I want to make him this. I want to make him that. And finally, my mom is the one that convinced me to go back and have a meeting with Donnie. And in the meeting, there is my man, Bobby Darren. And I'm going, holy mackerel. I'm in here with Bobby Darren, ready to sign a contract with Don Kirshner, who was this a great young entrepreneur. And the rest was history. He got me signed to Epic Records. And my first hit was Carol King's first hit, by the way. 
It was a song called Half with a Paradise mm-hmm. that she wrote with her husband. Wow. And I was off and running, but God has blessed me with great people like the ones I just mentioned and continued all through these 64 years. You can't do it alone. I must tell you, I've been blessed. And, of course, the main orchestrator, in my opinion, is the uh, God himself. Yeah. Well, I was saying, you know, like, it, as such a young kid, Don Kirshner at 16, but then then Clive Davis hires you as an executive for Columbia Records. I mean, you're already a solo artist yep. in the late 60s, but yep. then you go from Don Kirshner to Clive Davis. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I tell you what, and here's what's crazy about it, David. What's crazy is I had these first two hit records, and then it just timed out perfectly. It came the Beatles, 63, you know, the Beatles and mm-hmm. British Invasion and mm-hmm. Rolling Stones, Dave Lock, Clock Five, and those of us who were having young teenage hits like myself, Bobby Vinton, Gene Pitney, uh, Brian Hyland, we weren't getting any work. None. Yeah. And Clive, here's what's, I hope you can stay with this because it's crazy. <laughs> he was the fifth lawyer at Columbia Records when Donnie brought me there to sign. In other words, he's fifth guy on the totem pole, not the president, mm-hmm. which he became, mm-hmm. the fifth guy. And he was the guy that was. I had to sit with with my mother because I was underage, and I signed the contract. That's when I met Clive Davis. So all these years later, from my age of 16 to my age of 23, he is now president of Columbia Records. And he calls me up, and he said, Tony, you're out of work, huh, kid? (laughs) I'm out of work. He goes, listen. I'd like to hire you as my general manager to my music division. Wow. I said, what? Yeah, wow. He said, yeah. I said, Clive, I never went to high school. I wouldn't even know how to open a file cabinet. What are you talking about? No, you know you had talent. And he said, yeah. and he said I'll tell you what, Tony. In this business, uh, you don't need your ears to open a, 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 a file cabinet. And that's <laughs> what I'm hiring you for, your ears, your ability to hear a hit. And God Almighty, I had a great run. And I, as you just said, I represented Blood, Sweat, and Tears and their music. And, of course, James Taylor. I was yeah. in charge of all his music at that company. And I signed a young kid named Barry Manilow. And young kid. He made me vice president, Clyde did, after that. Wow. Wow. But then at the same time, and, and this is another another career switch, at the same time, here comes a song called Candida. And it's a complicated story. It was for Bell Records while you were working for CBS. It was complicated, but you made it work. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, it was like a moonlight job, actually. Uh, I was trying to please both Clive and at the same time, this buddy of mine. Do you remember a record called Lion Sleeps Tonight? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. By the tokens. Mm-hmm. Well, the member of that tokens, Hank Medris, comes to my office, and here I am, DP, right? I got this big job. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting behind that big desk at CBS, and he walks in, he goes, Tony, we go back a long time, and I'm, I'm broke. And I need $3,000 to pay all of my bills, or I'm going to get evicted. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm in trouble. Here's a song and a record I produced. Do you think you'd buy it? And I listened to it, and lo and behold, what is it? A song called Candida. Mm-hmm. It's the same track that 
you finally heard me on yeah. that went to number one, but yeah. it was done by Hank and some other singer he was using at the time. So I said, Hank, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll bring it over to Bell Records because they're more into the singles-oriented record business than, than LPs. You know, they had the box tops and the fifth dimension yeah, of the yeah. Partridge family. Mm-hmm. So it fit perfectly. I walked over and the president of the company says, I love the record. I'll tell Hank I'll give him the 3000 but I'm not happy with the lead singer. Huh. So I go back to Hank and he goes, you do it. I said, well, Hank, I can't put my... <laughs> well, you used to do all the demos for Carol King, and this is very much like the song she would have written. But the drift is, would you, would you put your voice on it? And he begged me, and he begged me, and I, my heart broke for him. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go in the studio with you tonight, but you can't call it my agent, my name. You can't put my name on it. I, you know, I, I'm hoping you get your 3000 I don't want any deal. I don't want any money from that. I'll do you the favor, but you can't call it Tony Orlando. So he takes me to the studio, and we cut that song one line at a time. <laughs> One line, huh. because I didn't know the song. Oh, right, yeah. And the song became a number one two million record. And I remember Crazy. I know. saying to Hank, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I don't want to lose my job. Oh, my God. So then he goes back and he says to me, I want you to cut this song called Mock three times. Right. And I said, Hank, <laughs> stop it. I'm going to get fired. He said, I said, look, yeah. I said, this is the worst song I ever heard. Twice on the pipe. Only Brooklyn has pipes. There are no pipes in the Midwest. What are you talking about? In that case, I'll do it, but please, no more. Mm-hmm. That sells four million records. Now I'm into six million records sold, right? Mm-hmm. And I go to Clive and I go, Clive, I have to leave the company. I have to chase my dream. And he said, I know, you're done, right? <laughs> I know. He knew. He knew, he knew a lot. And I, I, go, <laughs> and I go, you always knew? He said, it's the worst kept secret in the record <laughs> business. And I'll never forget what Clive said oh, to man. me that day. He said, you go and chase your dream. If it doesn't happen for you, you can always come home. I love that. I love that. I yeah. love that. It's a true friend. Don, Tel- Telma Hopkins, Joyce Vincent. They were very well-known Motown background singers in Detroit. You know, how did they become Don? Like, how did you hook up with them? I was producing Barry. I was in the studio with Barry Manilow. And I didn't want to use the same background voices that were used in New York in every session. Yeah. So uh, I heard that Hot Buttered Soul, the group that sang with Isaac Hayes, was at the Apollo Theater. And I called, and the person that I answered the phone was Telma Hopkins. So I hired them to sing background on, on one of Barry's uh, album cuts. And this girl was absolutely beautiful. And I thought, you know, the record sound doesn't sound like a band. It sounds like a guy with two or three backgrounds, girl background singers. So I said, listen, would you be interested in going on the road and becoming Dawn? And she said, the group that knocked three times? I go, yes. Yeah. She goes, well, I don't know. I'm with Isaac Hayes. I said, well, if you think about it, I said, um, I can book a tour in, in England. For, for t-. She goes, England? <laughs> I go, yes, because I've never been to England. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. 
can I leave the group after England if it doesn't work? I said, well, yeah, sure. I said, let's just try to make this work in a beautiful way. So Thelma and Joyce, who is Thelma's cousin, mm-hmm. decided to come in and fly and be Tony Orlando and be Dawn. It just dawned at the time. We went to England and we were a huge hit and we never stopped. It just kept building and building. And then, of course, we cut tie yellow ribbon. I'm going to tell you something. I, I've been doing radio at WABC in New York now. I know you have. Yeah, yeah. I'm having the time. I have the greatest respect for people, broadcasters and radio. Everybody who's listening to this show, let me tell you, everything he did, he, he sat some time somewhere and spent hours searching all this questioning out. And he <laughs> I does do. it with such grace and such oh, ease. That's nice of you. I try to do that with my guests. I'm the worst interviewer on the planet. You know, it's such an art form. It's such a wonderful gift to be able to do what you do. To communicate with people where they don't see you, is it's an underrated art form. I'm telling you, what you've done here is incredible. And I'm honored to be on your show. Oh, Thank that's very kind of you. On how to, how to do it. But, but uh, yeah. Very you know, kind of you. Thank um, you, sir. No, it really is the truth. It, 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 it's just overwhelming to see how graceful you've gone through each question, and I know that you had to read it out of a book somewhere or out of a trade paper, and it took time and hours to do that just to do me as an interview. It, I, it's, kind. A, it's a very difficult thing to learn. But anyway, um, so... Yes, I, it was during the POWs coming home, and it was a major change in my life, to be honest with you, because when Bob Hope called me and said, I want you to come and welcome home the POWs at the Cotton Bowl, remember, the record was only out a couple of weeks. It wasn't a gigantic hit yet. Right, right. And I told that to Bob Hope. I said, you know, people are not going to know this song yet. He goes, what are you talking about? You're talking to Bob Hope. He said, when you get to Dallas, Texas, to do this at the Cotton Bowl, you will be number one. Wow. And I said, you got a week to make me number one? He said, you're talking to Bob Hope. And then he changed it. You're talking to Bob Yellow Ribbon Hope. <laughs> he was beautiful. And wow. sure enough, I get there, and the record is he forced it in on the stations because the Welcome Home Appeal W's, he forced it on. And I get there, and it's number one. I walk on stage, there's 70,000 people at the Cotton Bowl, and on the 50-yard line with the 500 POWs plus. And when I saw them, their eyes hadn't even adjusted to daylight yet. They were tortured, tortured terribly in the Hanoi Open, as you know. And they changed my life, and I said to Bob, if I continue with a career, I said, that is meaningful, I'm going to make sure that I dedicate my career to military military needs veterans oh you've raised money for them ever since oh yeah that's it that's it that's that's big for you i know this yeah yeah did you ever what did it to me to be honest with you is those those men were just what they went through and to sit on that 50 yard line and sing tie yellow ribbon like they were at a new year's eve party was pretty revealing and overwhelming for me. Wow. Wow. 
Oh, I know. And that song, that song sent a message and it was your biggest hit on top of it, you know, and your hits were endless. And after working for CBS Records, as long as you did, now CBS Television came to you in 74 to replace Sonny and Cher on their summer schedule. And your first TV guest was somebody you idolized growing up watching early television. That was Jackie Gleason. What happened was Cher and Sonny broke up. Mm-hmm. When they broke up, Sonny and Cher's show. When we came on, Fred Silverman, who was then president of CBS, oh, right. yep. believed he believed that he believed that uh, variety shows were not dead. And it was the theory of television people that the variety shows, as you and I know them, like Sonny and Sharon, like Carol Burnett, were over. Well, Freddie, God bless him, believed it true, and he put us on the air as a summer replacement show, as you so well said, and we ended up. It was. 36 million people watching us on a Wednesday night. Yeah. But remember, there was no cable then. No. There was only three networks. So you had America. So we went on the air. My God, we were a big hit. I mean, we were a yeah. huge hit. Yeah. And we went on in that January as a, as, as a regular you know, variety show. Mm-hmm. And then Cher, when Freddie saw us hit, Cher said uh, she agreed to come back as just the share show. I remember that, yeah. And of course, you know, she's, oh, forget it. I mean, there's nobody more charismatic, nor beautiful, more talented than Cher. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. She was wonderful to me. Her and Sonny were wonderful friends. And so as well was Carol Burnett. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, in, in the years that you did this series, like, what guests, like, made you pinch yourself? that were on the show that you're like, Oh my God, doing your show. Well, certainly Jackie was one of them because Jackie never did guest spots. Jackie Gleason, you know, at that time he was called the great one. I mean, he was, the, he was the man, he was the biggest star on the planet, you know, the honeymooners, mm-hmm. etc. And he was just huge. And, and, uh, I, I think the most important guest for me personally was Jerry Lewis because oh, yeah, yeah. get this one, mm-hmm. get this one. I was ten years old when I met Jerry Lewis. He was doing the the original telephones in New York City. Now right. this is nineteen fifty four. Yeah, I go out and I get a a jar filled with fifty nine dollars worth of pennies, quarters, and dimes. And I go to the Sheraton Hotel, and I stand online, and there's the great Jerry Lewis, one of my idols, of course. And I walk up, and I say, Mr. Lewis, this is for your kids. I did my best. Here's $59. And he went, well, thanks a lot, kid. And he gives me a hug. 1983, I'm working in Vegas, headlining at the Hilton Hotel, uh, same hotel that Elvis was headlining at. And who comes to see me? Jerry comes backstage to the dressing room and he says, Hey, Tony, <laughs> let me ask you something. Would you like to be my co-host on the telephone? Yeah. Come to New York with me and Sammy? Yeah. You did that for years, years, years. And I looked at him and I said, Jerry, if I won the Academy Award and had a choice between what you just presented to me, I the Academy Award, I would turn it down. That's how important it was to me to be able to do that with him. And I did it for 33 years with Jerry Lewis. So of all of the people I had on that show, 
to have that guy since I met him when I was 10. Now he's a guest, this megastar, Jerry Lewis, on my television show. Talk about a picture. Yeah, yeah, wow. But I will say, like, for, for all this time, 64 years, you have done it all. And, and this tour is to celebrate you, your hits, and everything that you have brought to your fans. And tomorrow at the Displains yes. Theater, Sunday at the Arcata Theater and St. Charles. And for tickets and more, you can visit Oshows. Dot com. Tony, what a real pleasure. And and honestly, enjoy the tour. And, and may I may I interrupt you about yeah. that? About I've worked the Arcade Theater now and this place this is my second time. Yeah. Um for Ron Anesti. Ron's who, a great guy. In this area, in my opinion, is a hero. Yeah. What, what he's one of these people that when he built the venue, it's not about him. Mm-mm. It's not about an ego. Nope. Nope. He wants the best thing for, for the public, and it's a privilege, a privilege. And every act, I was talking to Paul Anker the other day, <laughs> how much he loves working for Ron. Yeah, The city of St. Charles and the people of Chicago owe him a great thanks because he sacrifices a lot to bring all these performers. I'm honored Legends. to be able to set my last days with him. I love hearing that. I, I absolutely love hearing that. And, and I hope to see you, uh, this weekend. And again, I appreciate your time. Uh, you, you are just such a amazing guy, co- amazing career and such a music Thank legend. You. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And, and can I have your phone number so I can learn how to interview like you? <laughs> you can. I'll can give I it to you. Can you give me some tips? No, I'm not kidding. You. I'd love to. I'd love I'm not to. Kidding. Be an honor. Be an I'm honor. Gonna have to, I'm going to have to pick your brains because you're unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate you know? that. Have fun in Chicago. You are. Thank you, sir.